Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. I recently did a podcast with Jenny Davis from Scotland, who was diagnosed at age 37 with colon cancer, and she endured a horrific traditional treatment of chemotherapy. And when she was deciding what to do, she really felt as though she had no other choice but to go the conventional route because the alternative medicine routes were too unproven, too uncertain, not enough data, and her family would just think she was crazy. Well, what you're going to hear today is a story of Joseph Riggio, whose wife had cancer for years, and they pursued 95 to 97% alternative treatments, almost completely outside of the usual system, and he tells his story in great detail. Absolutely fascinating very interesting data points. Enjoy this conversation now. This is Perry Marshall. I'm here with Joseph Riggio from Sarasota, Florida, Dr. Joseph Riggio. And um, I know him very well because he is one of the business consultants that consults me. And he has expertise on a very interesting and unusual stir fry of things, including body language, neuro-linguistic programming, meta-narratives, and um, we've been friends for about two years. And in the course of my conversations with him, I came to find out that his uh, now deceased wife, Nancy, had a long battle with cancer with many, many interesting twists and turns and lots of resources expended. And although it doesn't have a happy ending because he did lose her, the twists and turns in the middle are very instructive and open a world that a lot of people don't really have the courage to peek under the tent. And we were having a conversation about two months ago that was just flipping, riveting, fascinating. And I said, I got to get you on my podcast telling this story. And so, Joe, welcome. Thanks, Barry. Thank you. First of all, tell me a little bit before you get to the cancer stuff. Tell me, okay, what sort of person is Nancy and how did you guys meet? Give, Give us like a little capsule uh, before we you know, get sure. into the whole story. So uh, what feels like 100 years ago, but was actually in the late 1980s, I began studying with this guy, Roy Frazier, and originally came to him because he was an NLP master trainer, and I wanted to continue my NLP training at that time. And uh, I was in a master's program auditing a bunch of classes in cognitive science, and he just stood out amongst a bunch of trainers that I had stepped in the room with because he was also doing this model of work that he had developed called the generative imprint model. And it was really fascinating. He was an Israeli commando for 25 years. 
wound up in the United States, been at Boston University, was out West studying with a bunch of people at NLP Comprehensive and Richard Bandler, one of the founders of NLP, and was just this incredibly um, Gandalf-like character. I mean, so, you know, he was just a strange, bushy, white-haired, ex-commando guy, you know, and I went to a training with him and I decided that I was going to then intensify my training with him. And I wound up apprenticing literally for seven years with Roy in the, I guess it was the second year, almost third year that I had been studying with him. He had moved to Mystic, Connecticut, right on the Mystic River, right? Beautiful office. And I walk in and there's this woman in a chair and she's sniffling and crying and there's snot running down her face and he's doing some kind of work with her and talking about her finger movement and I'm entranced. And, and Perry, I cannot tell you why. It was just that love at first sight thing. I didn't necessarily believe in it before that, but there it was. And I remember she was wearing a purple halter top, one of those sleeveless tops, and she had khaki linen pants on. I mean, I remember the day I met her with that kind of specificity. And I knew, like in my head, I went, I'm going to have some kind of relationship with this woman. I didn't know if it was going to be friendship or an affair or what it was going to be. It wound up, you know, many years later, 20 years later being a marriage. But the point was that I was immediately entranced with her and she probably looked the worst I had ever seen her in the entire 20 odd years I knew her. So that's meeting Nancy. And so she and I studied together with Roy for many years and about, um, so I guess six months into having met her, I decided to ask her to go on a date. So we went on this wonderful date, and it was in New York City at the Halloween Parade in New York City. Now, if you know the Halloween Parade in New York City, it is an event. It is largely an LBGTQ event, and people dress wildly. I mean, the costumes, and it's outlandishly wonderful and exciting and interesting. And so we went to see this, and I took her given my background to a Sicilian restaurant in Greenwich Village. So we went down to the Sicilian restaurant. We had dinner. We had a wonderful date, kissed her goodnight, sent her off home in a cab and went home. And then we didn't date again for another five months because I was in a relationship with another woman. And I decided the relationship I was going to have with Nancy was going to be significant enough. I didn't want to make it muddy and cloudy. Five months later, I wind up calling her and say, we should have dinner. And she goes, why? And I go, what do you mean? Why? She goes, you took me out and then we haven't been out again for five months. All of a sudden, now I should go to dinner with you. And I went, yeah. And she goes, okay, but I'm bringing a friend. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'm bringing a friend too then. And we wound up going to an Indian restaurant. And the friend that I bought was my son, Jason, who was five years old at the time. And they had sprinkled these little foil stars and moons and, you know, uh, asterisks on the table. And he was bored because he's five years old and here's this adult conversation going on. And immediately Nancy begins engaging with him and getting him to sort all of the little foil designs into stars and moon piles and then red and blue piles. And he, that was his, I mean, that was just for him, for Jason, Mr. Coordinated, obsessive, obsessive, you know, sorter. He loved it. And she kind of, again, stole my heart a little bit because she was there with my kid instead of making it an issue, made it a delight. Mm. In any case, long story short, we wind up dating very, very seriously. And um, that was in 1990. So that was the start of the romance, start of the relationship. In 1994, we were not yet living together. She was in New York City and I was living in New Jersey. But Nancy was always kind of an alternative health practitioner, you know, interested in that kind of thing. 
So she was, uh, when I met her, a vegetarian. Within a few months, she was eating steak with me, but that had more to do with me than her. And uh, we just were having a good time. And she found a lump on the inside thigh of her right leg. And so she said, I, I got to find out what this is. You know, I got to know what's going on. And her mother had passed away from cancer. So she had a kind of concern already going into this. She went down to a holistic physician that she had found in New Jersey. And I drove down with her. And he said, listen, it feels like a fatty tumor. I don't see any other issues. All your stats are great. All your blood work is good. There's no indication there's anything going on here. Let's take it out. So he does the surgery and he does like an in-office, you know, outpatient kind of thing. And when he takes it, he says, I'm not sure I want to get this biopsy. And sure enough, it came back and it turned out she had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma B cell. And it was a large cell lymphoma. And the problem was when he took it out, he wasn't sure that he had great margins because he thought he was taking out a fatty tumor. So he wasn't going in deep. Long story short, comes back, we get the diagnosis. She decides she's got to get this thing really taken care of by somebody who's good, especially since now it's been cut into. And we go into New York City. And at that time, one of the top physicians working in the area of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was a guy named Dr. McDonald. She wound up working with him. He did the surgery. He got great margins. She went and had some radiotherapy after that. And she came back and had a consult with Dr. McDonald who told her that at most she had a 10-year span because the kind of cancer she has has no cure rate. And the people who have the best prognosis make about 10 years. So she, in her mind, is a 10-year death warrant sitting out there. And uh, this was in 1993. She she went to Hoffman. 94, she went to McDonald. So um, we were thinking, you know, by 2004, it's over. We're done. And that was the, uh, the place where we were, we were spending our time is understanding best case scenario, she has 10 years. What can we do with it? And Nancy, I have to tell you, was one of the most remarkable people I'd ever met in terms of facing a, an illness like that and basically put it on the side. She had a special compartment somewhere in her head that she kept the information about her illness and lived her life. And we went out, we had fun. We did lots and lots and lots of things. Uh, fast forward. 1999, we get married. We have a child. She's born in December of 99. And Nancy, at this point, has been cancer-free for the last five years. And that's where the story kind of begins. Because around 2001, the cancer reappears with an aggressiveness in the lymph node in the axial region under her arm. Mm -hmm. So initially, it's just, again, it's just a lump. And it goes away. It comes up and it goes away. So the lymph node becomes enlarged and then it settles. And then she winds up with an enlarged lymph node in her neck and they do a biopsy and it's cancerous. And she goes to another doctor in Connecticut, a naturopath. And this is where it starts because she's not going to go back and do chemotherapy. She absolutely refuses. She's got nauseophobia to begin with. So she doesn't want to be nauseous. She sees people around her doing chemotherapy and getting a year or two of a miserable life quality, not interested in that. They've told her it's uncurable. You can't cure this this particular non-Hopkins lymphoma she has. So she's going to do everything else she can. She's trying to eat healthy. She's trying to exercise. She's trying to stay well. 
She's reading every book there is on alternative methods. They tell you you shouldn't eat sugar. No, it's not sugar. It's saturated fat. No, it's not saturated fat. It's your mental state. No, it's not your mental state. It's the air you're breathing. It's the bed you're sleeping. I mean, it was on and on and on. She's reading everything and trying to decide what to do. And I'm at this point, married to her. We have a small little girl we're raising together, and we're trying to figure out how to make this work. So he goes in there and says, listen, one of the things that we found can work is a carrot poultice, where you take carrots, including their leaves, and you put them in a blender, and you put the poultice on the growth, and it can make a difference. In the meantime, we also know that typhoid vaccine tends to have a positive effect on this particular type of tumor. So we do the typhoid vaccine, we do carrot poultice, and the lump on her neck disappears. Mm. So you're, you're taking carrot mush and putting it on your skin. In, in, in uh, cheesecloth mm. and kind of wrapping it around your neck or wherever the, the, the lump is, I guess, wherever the tumor is showing with uh, you know, an ace bandage or somewhere, you know, affixing it to the area and letting it sit there for a few hours, like overnight. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to work. In fact, it worked great in and terms of that particular issue. I want to say I have heard different versions of this with different materials, ingredients from multiple people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is real. Like this isn't just some kooky thing. And and this doctor, like just give us an idea about this doctor who was recommending this. He was a really well-known doctor at the time. He was doing a lot of work in the area of blood type, you know, differences in diet and blood type and things like that. And he was a naturopath. He wasn't an MD. Uh, His father was an MD. And he actually decided not to go into medical school because of what he saw around medicine and decided that he wanted to do naturopathic medicine. In Connecticut, naturopaths are licensed. So they can do a lot more than they can in most other states mm. and they're okay. insurance and other kinds of things. And he was, you know, as legit as I've seen in terms of being in and out of the medical offices after many, many years of, of living with Nancy with the issue in the sense that he was very serious about what he was doing. He wasn't just, you know, making quack comments, as some people would think. He did a serious diagnosis. He did all the standard tests up front, did a blood draw had that analyzed, you know, did the biopsy, found out what was going on, mm-hmm. and then made this recommendation. You know, the limits of what I can do are natural based, naturally based, and we found that this works. And he had a uh, physician's assistant, a PA, who could administer the vaccine in his office. So mm-hmm. she administered the typhoid vaccine. And it seemed, again, this, this really seemed to work, at least up until that point. I don't and really they, remember, Perry. The tumor shrink. Disappeared. It didn't just shrink. It disappeared. There was no wow. evidence of that tumor anymore in her neck. Wow. By the way, she passed away in 2012. So we're in 2003. So nine years later, that tumor never returned. We never wow. saw a lump there again. We never had any indication that there's anything going on in her neck region or anything above, let's call it the clavicle. There was no indication of any cancerous growth there at all. And so we had a a confirmed diagnosis with a biopsy and it went away, that particular tumor. So she's now fine for about another year without any major indications. And that's when we start seeing this lump who had originally appeared and then disappeared, reappearing into her arm in the axial region. And now it starts getting aggressive. 
it's growing. And eventually, by the time we were done with this, that particular tumor was probably the size of a grapefruit embedded under her arm with half of it on the outside and half of it on the inside. So it was, it was quite significant. And that was the, the major area where, where she was struggling. And of course, it was in the lymph node of the, that area. So it's lymphoma, number one. And number two, it's probably at this point moving through the system in some way that's undiagnosable, but this tumor is significant that she's dealing with and significant over nine years. So it, it wasn't you know immediate, but we began exploring different paths. So all of the dietary paths, there, there's people who recommend that you can eat various forms of fermented milk from yogurt to kefir to all kinds of things. And you do that with linseed oil and flaxseed. And supposedly this is going to clear the system. And pretty much, I will tell you, everything she did had some degree of positive effect at the beginning. Mm. And then it's like the cancer would rebound and sometimes come back to where it had been at a plateau level, sometimes come back more aggressively. So none of the alternative treatments really dealt with it entirely, but they did two things. They definitely relieved the immediate symptomology and definitely increased her sense of energy and well-being. Now, how much of that's placebo? Can't tell you the energy well-being part, but clearly the tumor would shrink in size so you could physically see it was having an effect in her body at some level in some way. So this is now 2004 and the tumor is now returning and we've got to you know, make the next steps forward in figuring out what to do. So she begins doing everything now on her own. And when I mean everything, Rife machine, I don't know if you know what a Rife machine is, but it's a, a machine that basically pulses small electric doses into your body through a set of pads that you put on, usually around or by the tumor and you ground it somewhere else. And then the machine calibrates based upon the kind of cancer you have and the reading it takes of you to send these minor, almost like a TENS machine, minor electrical pulses into your body. The guy who designed it, Rife, was an electrical engineer and his wife had cancer. And he designed this for her after studying the cancer. And she was, she lived, she survived. He began working with patients who had cancer, who had, you know, again, no hope diagnoses, terminal condition, stage four stuff, and was getting results. The U.S. government came in, seized his laboratory, seized all of his equipment, seized all of his notes, and basically put him out of business and, and threatened him that this was the one, you know, get out of jail free card, and he was not getting any more. And people came after him, you know, Alexander Reif tried to come after him to figure out what was going on, what he'd done, what he, how he figured it out, what he was doing with the pulsing, because people were getting results and he refused. He wouldn't give anybody information, but people kind of uh, reverse engineered the machine. So now there's Rife machines you can buy, go online, look up Rife at R-I-F-E, and -hmm. you'll see these machines on advertised. They're anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to tens of thousands of dollars, depending on who's building it and the how close it got to Rife and all of this. And there are people who swear by them. Wow. And again, we saw results short-term. Mm. Tumors stopped growing, began to reverse in size. Her energy level went up. And the commitment that she had to this was enormous. I mean, you have to put your feet on wet pads. You have to sit there for anywhere from an hour to two or three hours, let the machine do its thing. It's calibrating and it's, it's running. And she would do this every day. And so real 
when she did something, there was enormous commitment to it. So I can go through the whole list of everything, but there were, as I say, a lot of dietary things, coffee enemas, all kinds of ways to deal with what presumably were metabolic issues. We wind up going to another naturopath in New Jersey, high colonics, um, IV, chelation, on and on and on. We, we bought these magnets, which are um, rare earth magnets that weigh 400 pounds a piece. There's four of them that collectively make up the size of a twin bed. And you're supposed to sleep on these things and not get up for any reason other than to use the toilet until the cancer goes away. She was not doing that, but she would sleep on them at night. They were basically plywood and she'd have, you know, you have to keep close to the magnets. So she'd have like a comforter between her and the plywood. That one was probably the least effective thing we saw. There was no real appreciable, you know, thing that happened when she did that one. But now I've invested in four rare earth, 400 pound magnets that are, stuck under my bed, you know, we could get them out of the way at this point because they're no longer really seeming to be effective. So long story short, she continues to go on this way. Around 2009, she's gone through all kinds of things. She went with, um, to a guy who was using internal uh, enzyme treatment, real high levels of enzymes to basically dissolve the, the tumor supposedly and external blood wart to dissolve it from the outside. Again, did it work? It worked great. Tumor was definitely getting dissolved from the outside, at least with the blood work, until it hit an, a vein that she had, or an artery actually, a small one. And now we're in bed and she's basically pumping blood out through this small artery. It was not a big deal, but we had to call EMS. They came, they, they dealt with it, they treated it without being too gross, blood all over the bathroom. I had to you know, clean up. She's now in bed. My daughter's a little freaked out because she was now uh, five or six years old at this point, maybe seven. And, um, you know, just when I tell you we did all kinds of things, we did all kinds of things, right? So that was down in Georgia. Now we're back up in New Jersey and she goes to a, a legitimate doctor, meaning an MD who's certified by the AMA and has all the right credentials, who's a cancer specialist, had worked with the National Cancer Institute for five or six years, who is absolutely uh, admonishing her and outraged that she's done all these crazy things. Mm. So we go, great. What can you do? Well, this is incurable. So you can't do anything, but you want to give her grief for doing what she's done. And by the way, she's now outlived the original diagnosis by the top cancer specialist in the world at the time. Right. Yes. And because mostly again, with a high quality of life. 1993, 10 years 2003, and now you're in what year? 2007. I remember it because we had some other stuff going on that year. 2007. Yeah. So she's outlived the, the diagnosis. He's outraged that she's done these things. Frankly, in between the episodes of the intensity of what was going on, we had a high quality of life. And she did everything. Her family, no one but me, literally, and her daughter knew that she had cancer. Wow. Okay. Nobody she knew. She didn't call all her friends. And she didn't call all her friends. She didn't tell her family. She did not want to be treated like a cancer victim. That was her big thing. She knew what happened. She'd seen her mother go through it. She did not want all that. And, and for her, maintaining a positive mental state was really high on her list of important qualities. And having people talk to her about cancer, ask how you're doing, what's going on, what's the treatment you're in right now. And she knew this would be incredibly overwhelming, like a wet blanket on her every time the conversation came up. Yeah. 
So she and I would talk about it and mostly in terms of options about what to do or what she was doing. And, you know, if she had a bad day, I would step in and help out so she didn't have to deal with you know, life in, in that moment. But the reality was, again, 99% of the time she was in a great state. We didn't miss any family parties or any events in our life because of it. She was taking care of Michaela, our daughter. She was working with me at the time, running our office and just maintained everything. And we were traveling like wild because I was doing international business. We've gone to China during that period of time. We went to Japan. We went to Europe many, many times, South America, all over the United States. So as much as is conceivable to imagine, it simply did not interfere with our life. We just contained it and held it. And she dealt with it in an ongoing way. And her mental state was tremendous. She was unique, as I say. What I didn't know until later was her pain tolerance was also off the charts. So I never knew if she was in pain, off the charts. And I'll tell you a little story as we go a little further. So anyway, this is what's going on. And he gives her a uh, progesterone, I think it was, and a steroid treatment. And again, basically the tumor disappears. And he tells her, this is temporary. It will work. And it's going to probably deal with 80, maybe even 90% of the cells will respond well to it. But those 10% of the cells that are left will recover, they will grow, and they will be more aggressive. So you're buying a window of time. Okay, we do that. Again, the tumor disappears. There's no external evidence of it at this point. We know that he's told us this is temporary, and we're waiting for it to come back, in essence. Not on eggshells, but pretty much accepting his diagnosis that this was not going to be a permanent solution. And he's trying to encourage her to do real, quote unquote, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And she's just, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. 2009, the tumor's back and it's aggressive. And it is now growing at a rate that was inconceivable in the sense of what we had seen before. Not necessarily inconceivable for the medical profession, but I'm not a medical doctor. And it was astounding to me how quickly it went from not being there to being, as I said, a grapefruit. And it's weeping under her arm. So she's literally wrapping the under of her arm with bandages. And at one point, literally towels going through airports. And the reason we're going through airports is she had found a clinic in Texas run by a physician that was doing some innovative work with building custom vaccines, cancer-based vaccines for children with brain tumors and getting really good results. The, the clinic's still in place. And we went out there. It was the most horrid medical institutional environment I'd ever been in. It was, it was just a hospital where everybody was really ill and everybody on staff was recognizing they were dealing with really ill people, many of whom would die. And there was an arm's length kind of emotional sense that everything was going on. It was just cold and horrid. They were getting good results. I'm not, not questioning their medicine, but emotionally and in terms of what was going on. And they said, listen, we don't really deal with your kind of cancer. Hmm. We may be able to do stuff, but we don't know if we can do anything specifically for you with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I went, let's get the hell out of here. Right? So she could not fly at that point. My son drove to Texas from New Jersey with her. I flew out to Texas. My son flew back home and I drove back with her. Wow. 
she's bad, Perry. On the way home, I thought two or three times because she was laying up against the side window of the car, she was dead. That's how bad she was. Okay. Not able to walk on her own. You know, I was helping her do everything in terms of movement. And literally, her breathing rate was so shallow, I couldn't see it and I couldn't hear it. And I thought I'd lost her. So I'd pull over, I'd wait a second, I'd check. If I shook her, she'd rouse a little bit and I go, okay, so she's not dead. Let's keep going. We made it home. We got to do something. She's got probably at this point weeks, maybe days at the condition she's in. I begin doing some research and she's still not going to do chemotherapy. She's still not going to do anything traditional. We at this point are probably, by the way, about a million dollars out of pocket. Mm. Okay. So by the grace of God, literally, we were able to be in a financial position where we could spend that. For somebody who doesn't have that kind of resource, the things we were doing was, were unattainable. You, you could not reach in your pocket and make it happen without having the money in the pocket to spend because yep. people were not going to do this for free. Yep. And when I tell you we bought every device and, you know, again, all kinds of electromagnetic mats and these magnets, I thought, it was just endless and supplements and nutrients and everything. We were, we were literally at that point, I had calculated about a million dollars out of pocket between travel and cost of treatments and cost of supplements. So we're at our wits end. She's going to pass away. My daughter is with a family um, friend who's taking care of her for us. And we now, I look up something and I find there's one clinic that's doing some outrageously good things with lymphoma down in the Bahamas. And they're in the Bahamas because what they're doing is literally illegal in the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. And at this point, I didn't mention everything. We had been to Tijuana. We, we did the, you know, the Leia Trill. I mean, if there was a potential solution, we at this point have tried it. The Bahamas is last resort. And what they did was really interesting. They would take a blood sample. They would run it against a very specific algorithm that found the particular type of cytokines that you had flowing in your blood, the cytokines that were going on. And they would find somebody who had been diagnosed like that, who is now healthy and do blood plasma transfusions. Again, immediately she gets a positive result. The tumor shrinks significantly. Mm. We're now renting an apartment in Bahamas. We're traveling back and forth every week. We're still living in New Jersey. We're in the Bahamas two or three days a week. We're in New Jersey the rest of the time. Sometimes we're in the Bahamas for a week or two because they're doing extra treatment like bee venom, okay? A custom cancer vaccine that was $20,000 just for that one treatment. Again, all kinds of things going on. Plus, you can imagine the expense associated with renting, flying back and forth, the treatments, the cost of care. It, again, by the end of it, we we're another million dollars out of pocket. Okay. This went on, fortunately, and I'm, I'm saying fortunately, for three years because she was relatively healthy for those three years. Then two things happened. The tumor came back with a vengeance, and she wound up one night in pain at the edge of almost screaming in hysteria. And this was not her. As I said, her pain tolerance was off the chart. We take her to the emergency room. They do a quick seek scan, CAT scan. They find out her iliac has busted, the end of the small intestine. She's basically septic. 
And the doctor goes in, does an emergency operation, ask her what kind of painkiller she's been on. She says, I haven't taken anything. He goes, what do you mean you haven't taken anything? You can't, nobody can have this kind of pain without being on painkillers. She said, I'm not on painkillers. And couldn't believe it. When he goes in, he finds her intestines riddled with tumors. Mm. Despite that, I now have to go to Denmark. I fly to Denmark with my daughter. I leave her in the Bahamas with her father who comes down to take care of her. I come back three days later and she's up around on her feet cleaning the house. Nancy is. Nancy. So I'm thinking I'm married to Superwoman. So she just had an emergency operation. They go in there. They repair the iliac. She's riddled with tumors. We now know this. And she looked like walking dead, but she's up on her feet cleaning. And I go, listen, this is not good. And she knows we're at the edge. She's got a couple of weeks left, maybe. It's time. Call your brother. She has a half-brother who's a physician in New Jersey. Ask him who the best oncologist in New Jersey is. Let's at least go have a visit and see her. So she does that. We fly back to New Jersey. We go to a hospital in Summit, New Jersey called Overlook. She meets with the oncologist there, a woman who was great, gets her immediately on antibiotics because she literally had sepsis, and then puts her on chemo at the same time. And again, the tumor shrinks. She's now diagnosed about six months later using traditional chemotherapy and radiotherapy as cancer-free, except there's a contained nodule somewhere between her heart and her shoulder that on a PET scan is glowing a bit. The rest of her body is cancer-free. Can't find any cancer anywhere else. They offer to do stem cell therapy. Stem cell therapy is basically where they go in, they collect your stem cells, they culture them, and they keep them because what they're going to do is give you chemotherapy, which kills all of the stem cells and marrow in your body. So basically everything in your body dies. And then they reimplant the marrow and stem cells they took so that they can bring back the system to where it was. And what they told us is you'll get five years. And at the end of it, you'll, you may still be alive, but you're going to start having organ issues. We're going to see organ failure because this chemotherapy we'll be using is so intense, it's literally going to damage all of your organs. Heart issues, kidney, you won't die from cancer. You'll be cancer-free. You'll be absolutely cancer-free. There will be no cancer in your body. We purify the, the cells we take out. We know you will not die from cancer, but there's a five-year diagnosis because of all the other issues that this treatment you know, brings on. And I went, it's up to you. If you're asking me, would I want you around for another five years? Absolutely. But this is your call. You have to decide if you want to do this or not. She decided not to do it. We go back to New Jersey and we're at this point working simultaneously with the oncologist with this brilliant, adorable madman named Alexander Konevsky, who's an MD was from Russia. I told you the story. I'll just repeat it here for our audience, so to speak. Alexander Konevsky is the youngest head of thoracic surgery ever in Moscow General Hospital. At 24, he's running the entire division. And he winds up getting a patient that comes in 
very quickly, I'll tell the story, has cancer, it's, it's untreatable. A year later, he sees her, her daughter, asks her, you know, how's things going? She goes, I'm not her daughter, I'm her. And he's shocked. You have to be dead, you know, like you can't have survived the cancer you had in your neck. It was wrapping around the spinal cord and entering your brain. That's why we couldn't treat it. What did you do? She goes, I went to an oriental medical doctor. He did this stuff and here I am. And he says, she looked great. She was clearly cancer-free and vibrant. She looked like she had lost 20 years. So he says, I've got to meet this doctor, introduce me. So he goes and meets the doctor, becomes fascinated with what the guy says, meets and brings four of his colleagues to Moscow to train his people. The Moscow hospital employs them to train everybody in oriental medicine. He becomes so fascinated. He goes and moves to China for two years, studies medicine in China for two years, comes back and emigrates to the United States mm. and winds up having to go through medical school again because they won't accept his documentation from Russia, goes to University of Maryland, completes an internship and a residency there, winds up becoming a certified psychiatrist in that process, and goes back to New Jersey, opens up an office, and does only psychotherapy and exclusively oriental medicine, does no Western medicine. And that's how we met Alexander. Mm. He's brilliant. He, he wrote a number of plays. He paints in acrylics. His office is above his art studio, which is showing his paintings. I mean, it's just, it's when I tell you, he's, a, he's a, this brilliant, insane madman. He's a brilliant, insane madman. And clearly brilliant. Everything that you talk to him about, he's got, he's lucid and he's clear about his explanations and his reasoning. And he believes Western medicine just induces further you know, issues for most cancer patients and should not be used. And has never done th uh, surgery again since he'd been to China, never picked up a knife. And he had been the head wow. of thoracic surgery and um, is doing all non-puncture acupuncture, literally uses a piece of slate that's sharpened to put pressure on the acupuncture points. Does moxibuction, which is basically heated herbs on a pressure point to draw the blood there. And obviously, if you're Chinese, the energy comes into those points too, the meridians, he clears the meridians. He's doing some wild herbal therapies for her. At one point we were going to Italy. We go to Italy and he gives us this pack of herbs that we have to boil. And in this pack of herbs, there's like literally twigs, leaves, rocks, broken pieces of turtle shell and some herbs. And when you cook it, it smells like a combination of rotting flesh dirty socks and sewage. It's horrible. Horrible. And she's got to drink this, by the way. I just have to smell it. So we're cooking this on a hot plate in our hotel room in Italy, at which point we get a knock on the door and the hotel manager is going, what the hell are you doing in here? In Italian to me. And he's going, you can't, you cannot do this. This is enough. Everybody leave the hotel. So we're having this conversation and this is the kind of stuff we're going through and she's drinking, you know, cook, cooking it. It's cooling down. She's putting it in jars. She's drinking it. And for two years, she's doing really well. <laughs> so it's now the end of 2011. We're had probably, by the way, from the time she did the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy to this point in time, one of the best years of our life. It's about 14 months. We were going back and forth to California. She had a, a very older cousin 
that she was helping to take care of. And we were back and forth, you know, flying and we just had a great year. My business was doing well, so I could support what was going on. Alexander was, was brilliant and also quite a good businessman because he was not inexpensive either. So he was doing okay with his stuff. And at the end of that, she just collapses. It was literally a two and a half month from healthy to passing away. And one of the things that happened in the process of this, she's basically in our home, in a hospital bed, and there's a hospice nurse 24-7 in the house. And at this point, most of that, fortunately, is, is under our insurance policy, so she could be have 24-hour care. And the hospice nurse is ready to basically call her because she's now re, you know, breathing in a ragged way. The bottom of her feet are modeled, if you know what happens as a person begins to pass. And I go, before we do anything, let's just call Alexander. One of the things Alexander would do is he'd do house calls. Mm. So he comes to the house. He does some acupuncture, does a bit of body work on her, and some moxibuction, burns these herbs on various points on her skin. She wakes up out of this basically stupor, is vibrant in bed, wants to eat, and the modeling of her feet disappears. They're pink and they're, they're rosy looking. The hospice nurse is blown away. I have no idea. I've never seen anything like this in my life. What are you doing? And she makes an agreement to go study with him to <laughs> learn what he's doing because she has never seen anything like this happen before. About a week and a half, 10 days later, um, Nancy did pass. And mm. that, was, that was her final rebound. But some of the stuff, I gave you one example of Alexander. Some of the stuff that happened with Alexander was just extraordinary. There were times where in the course of that treatment near the end, I was in a car with her at his office, had to pick her up and carry her in. She literally could not get out of the car, forget about walking. So I'd pick her up out of the car seat, carry her in, put her on his massage table where he'd do body work with her, go sit in the waiting area. He'd do all the stuff I had seen him do a hundred times, the manipulations, the acupuncture, the moxibuction, all the things he had done. She'd walk out of that office make dinner and hang out with my daughter and play. Truly of all the things I saw in this basically 17 year run with her, it was the most amazing things of all. There was nothing that compared to watching the turnarounds that would happen when Alexander worked with her. Absolutely astounding. From no energy, lethargic, depressed to vibrant, and healthy for weeks at a time initially. And even at the end, when she was clearly in her last moments, coming back for another couple of days. Do I remember a part of a story where somebody lost their medical license because you mentioned? No, what happened was, I usually leave this part out, but I'll be happy to share it since you raise it. It's when we were down in Georgia and she was doing this work with the guy who was administering uh, enzymes and doing the blood work to take the tumor away from the outside. And the reason we went down there is because he had been doing this for years. And we had already had that incident where it had kind of gotten into a, a, an artery and we didn't want to do that again on our own. And so we were going to go to this guy who was going to do the, the treatments to administer it. He would only do it if she was being overseen by a doctor that he worked with closely in the area. And the doctor told us, listen, I am not allowed to do anything other than to just make sure that you're basically healthy. I'll look at your blood pressure. 
and I'll oversee it. If there's any emergency, I can get you into a hospital. That's my role. When we came back to New Jersey, the doctor who had been on the National Cancer Institute service and was now running his own private practice, Nancy mentioned to him that she had worked with this doctor down in Georgia who was overseeing the treatment there. Because he asked for the whole, you know, we went through whatever it was, four hours of all of the treatments and everything Nancy had done before he would do anything. And within two days, she had received a letter challenging her medical license and lost it as a result. Now, we don't know. And I told you that for sure that he was the one to make the call, mm. but it was mighty coincidental. And it came from the National Cancer Institute offices, the original inquiry. So we're pretty sure that he was the kind of the whistleblower, if you want to call it that, I think, you know, devil in disguise. But that was a really unfortunate incident because she was a lovely doctor. She, she did not make any recommendations that were outside of standard medical practice. She didn't encourage Nancy to do what she was doing. She didn't discourage her. And she gave her, you know, very, very fine care in her office, caring, nurturing, high quality, um, just to make sure that there wasn't anything horrible that was happening. But because she was involved with these people who were doing alternative treatment that was not covered in any way by the medical association's guidelines, they revoked her license for basically not turning in the guy who was doing the enzyme and the blood work treatment. And she wouldn't turn on him. So they pulled her license. You now have a PhD in being the spouse of a cancer patient. I definitely earned that one with more uh, investment made in every way I can imagine than my other PhDs. Yes, with a $2 million tuition bill. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what conclusions or even recommendations or just observations do you have that wouldn't have necessarily been obvious from the story? The only recommendation I would give because I'm not qualified to give any other recommendation, but the only one I would give is question everything. Every time you see someone, whether it's a you know, traditional medical you know, physician or it's somebody in the alternative world, regardless of how close to the orthodox world or how fringe, question what they're doing. I mean, you, and the, the thing is the patient always will be their best advocate. So you, if you are ill, are going to be your best advocate, but you absolutely want to have somebody available and present and knowledgeable advocating for you and not knowledgeable about what's going on. I'm not a physician, as I said, but knowledgeable about you, about your history, about what you've been through, about what you're experiencing, about your mental and physical state. So they can be there for you and listen to what you have a hard time hearing because you're even more emotionally involved in what's going on than they are. And um, this idea of advocacy is just so important. And I've seen it and we've now been around other people who have gone through similar stories and, and had similar kinds of issues come up, some doing purely orthodox routes, some doing very alternative routes. And that ability to have someone who knows the story, who's there with you, who goes through it with you, is just such a critical factor in being able to support one another. Because she also supported me in dealing with what was going on with her, right? So that mutuality was just ridiculously important. And the only recommendation I would make, question everything and find an advocate, find somebody who will stand with you shoulder to shoulder in a resolute way, who, who just won't be run over by the standard, you know, I'm an expert bullshit, because that's what you'll get. You're going to get it. You're going to, you're going to run into it. 
there's going to be, I know I've been doing this 20 years. You don't have a medical license. And I went, but I have this thing called the brain, you know, and I have the ability to use it. So I'm going to now answer my freaking questions, you know, that kind of thing. And there were times where I was aggressive with some of the, the caregivers, you know, who, who wanted to go and do things. And we refused some treatments that were just, you know, out there fringe. I would, the other recommendation I would make is if you're going to go to Tijuana, hire a bodyguard too. That, that would be <laughs> another recommendation. That was it. That was an interesting experience going to Tijuana to get Laetro. But that would be what I said on the recommendation side. On the, you know, what I've noticed and what I've seen side and, you know, the kind of things I would say is I would say no matter what it is, whether, whether what I learned from this, you asked me that question, is if anything is wrong with me at this point, I presume the ability to think through the issue and address it at a commonsensical level with the advice of experts. Um, as I say, I'm, I have no hesitation going to a physician if there's something that orthodox allopathic medicine deals with well, and I do. You know, if I have an infection, antibiotics work. And I'm not, you know, out there on a fringe level where I won't take an antibiotic. I will, you know, I get a cut. I put Neosporin on it because I don't want to get infected, right? So I would say, but do things intelligently. And there's a tremendous amount of information out there. And the problem with that is you don't know which of the information is high quality and which is not, unless Mm -hmm. you really want to dig in and do your homework and really find that the stuff you're looking at has some valid you know, information behind it, some science behind it, if you want to say that word, whatever it is that you're doing, you have to be very, very attuned to the reality of the situation you're in, what will and won't work, and the validating information that surrounds it that says this is something viable to even consider. So those are the things I learned. And the other thing is, this is an opinion, pure opinion, Perry, at this point. I am livid about the atrocity is what I would call it. That is Obamacare. And I'll tell you why. Mm. Because at that moment, the Congress that was in place and the president of the United States could have passed a universal care plan. And everybody in the United States could be under universal care and not have to go, can I afford treatment? Can I do this or not? And as I said, we were fortunate. We could make a lot of choices. A lot of people I know now, especially small business owners, cannot afford insurance and they're running around uninsured. God forbid they run into a situation like this, they're out on a limb. And I think that was an atrocity. And I think part of the atrocity is not opening up the system to fund research in these alternative areas where there's Mm -hmm. some really interesting things that are going on and making available what seem to be by all intent and purpose, valid ways to approach treatment that are outside of the orthodox medical community's complete, confined, and bounded strictures of what is or isn't allowed, not what's good or bad, but allowed. Mm -hmm. So some of the stuff that we ran into clearly worked and did its job at the time and was a tremendous asset to have available to us. And there's lots of science being done around this by the people who are doing these things. The guys in the Bahamas, some of their science is off the charts brilliant. Some of the things you're doing with the cytokine treatment is just absolutely validated over and over and over again. And they, they will not open the door to even consider looking at this in the Orthodox community. And, you know, there's one thing you run into after you've gone through this process, as I did for almost 20 years and reaching your pocket as many times as I did, you get cancer is a business. It is a medical condition. 
there are sincere and intense people who care and want to help you. And they wear white coats and they have MDs on their chest, you know, and they're legitimate and they're, they're great people. But don't miss the idea that behind all of that, there's a business called cancer. Those would be my findings after living through all of this. Fantastic. I think your story speaks for itself and very, very fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. I would add one thing, and it's for anybody who happens to be maybe listening, who's going through it, or maybe even gone through it recently, maybe somebody who's, who's lost someone. And, you know, Nancy was 56 when she passed. And she was, you know, young and vibrant. We had a lot of friends. They knew her as being dynamic and interesting. And in some ways, you know, this, this fascinatingly brilliant, happy, cheerful woman. Um, her daughter was 12 years old when she passed. And what we came to understanding about is going through this together in many ways brought us closer and probably created a more vibrant relationship than we could have had it on, without any stress, without any, anything to deal with together. By dealing with it together, we had a, a more vibrant and intense and intimate relationship in many ways. So people would come up to me and say, oh, my God, what a tragedy. You know, you lost your wife and she was so young. My comment was I was with Nancy for 22 years. And the tragedy would have been not being with her at all, not having 22 years with her. And I think, you know, as a widower, it's important to remember the good times and the things that you went through that were positive and beneficial. And to recognize the tragedy would be having never had any of that time, not having lost somebody. We all lose people. Death happens. It's part of the human condition. But not everybody gets a chance to be with somebody they love and care about and to have the extraordinary times that I had with Nancy and to be left with her daughter and my daughter and to have all those memories part of our life as well. So I would send people off with that idea. The tragedy is not losing someone. It's not having a life with them when they're here. Thank you. Welcome. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Thank you.